Is this mic on? Can can everybody hear me? Okay. Three, two, one. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Alphabet Analysis. I'm your host, Caroline Curley, and I'm so glad you were able to join us this week. If it's your first time, welcome. And if you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Now, let me break down how this works for the newbies. Every season, we have a new franchise to break down, and every episode, we tackle a new letter of the alphabet with a one-word theme chosen by our audience. A very special guest and I will each choose one movie from the franchise and do some analysis on our films that relates somehow to our one-word theme. Then, a special listener will call in and share their thoughts. This season, the franchise is our childhood favorite, Disney. Last week, we took on the letter A with the word aesthetic and discussed how Disney's animation style has changed over the years, for better or for worse. This week, we take on the letter B with the word belonging. This word was chosen by our loyal listener, Lisa Andres, from Durham, North Carolina. Thanks, Lisa. All our discussion this episode will be centered around the idea of belonging. And now, the moment everybody has been waiting for, the introduction of our very special guest. You know and love him from our James Bond season, where he was featured a record five times. It's Alistair Albright. Hey, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get into our Disney discussion. I think everybody can relate either to the feeling of belonging or the desire to belong. And the idea of finding your home or family appears a lot in Disney films. So I chose Inside Out, a Pixar Animations film from 2015. Can you give us a quick overview of the plot for any listeners who haven't seen Inside Out? Well, first of all, if you haven't seen Inside Out, what are you doing? Directed by Pete Docter, a brilliant animator behind other Disney classics like Monsters, Inc. and Up, this movie is a masterpiece. It's stunning visually, musically, and emotionally. Essentially, we have a young girl, Riley, and she's a hockey player in Minnesota with two loving parents. The movie is mostly set inside Riley's mind, where we see her emotions personified as joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. All of a sudden, Riley's life is turned upside down when she has to move to scary, foreign San Francisco, where there's broccoli on pizza and she cries on the first day of school. Throughout these relatable problems that feel like the end of the world when you're 11, we as the audience get to watch her emotions struggle, adapt, and learn. It's really a beautiful movie about growing up. I am so excited that you chose Inside Out. I think it's a great movie to talk about the idea of belonging. So what direction did you take this in? Well, first, let's discuss the meaning of belonging. So at a personal level, what does it mean for someone to belong is sort of the guiding question we'll use. I'd like to reference Dr. Santo Anant, who would define belongingness as, quote, a personal involvement in a social system to the extent that the person himself feels to be an indispensable and integral part to the system. For starters, how do you feel about this definition of belonging? I am not totally sure that I fully agree with it because I feel like it kind of implies that one only belongs if they're super important to the community that they belong to. I feel that I am part of the community of people who love Marvel movies. Um, But I'm not important to that community at all. You know, I could one day decide I don't like Marvel anymore and it wouldn't make any difference. No, actually, I agree completely. This definition of belonging does seem to say that when you belong, you have to be important to what you belong to. But that's not true at all. And we'll see that as we explore Inside Out. So continuing to Inside Out, what I want to do is I want to focus on Riley throughout the movie and how her emotions, the main cast, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust, are an inner representation of her situation. So big picture, before we dive too deep into the story, let's talk about what's happening to Riley in her situation. So as we said in the summary, she's moved to San Francisco and the feeling of belonging that she had in Minnesota is distant. She's left her friends, school, and hockey behind and she needs something to replace those feelings. But as we'll soon see, she struggles on nearly every account of that. 
Let's recall some moments in the movie where we see this in action. Let's see one of the first scenes in San Francisco. The family's just arrived at their new house. Riley tries not to feel disappointed by her new house and room, and we see Joy try to take command of the other motions to try to lift Riley's spirits. Riley can't live oh, here. It's right. the worst. Really it's, bad. it's absolutely the worst. This house. The worst oh, has ever good. been in my entire oh, life. Yeah, hey, it's good. nothing our butterfly curtains couldn't fix. I read somewhere that an empty room is an opportunity. But then more problems arise. She goes back downstairs, and then they find out that their moving truck hasn't arrived yet, so they really don't have any of their belongings. And then the family business gets busy, so her parents become really occupied with the business and finding their belongings that they don't have much time for Riley anymore. Not only has she lost friends, school, and hockey, but now her parents are really busy, and she's starting to lose what little she has left of her sense of belongingness. From all that, we also see that Riley's trying to make the best of the situation, but her efforts don't work out. From what we see about Riley, she's usually a really happy kid, and she's put in a situation where she doesn't have her stuff, she doesn't have her parents, and that makes her feel really frustrated. I think the prevalence of emotions like anger and fear, which she's not really used to feeling all that much, make her feel more out of place, more not like herself, and so that makes her feel even less like she belongs. Yeah, and let's see how her inner world reflects that. Early on in the movie, sadness and joy get ejected out of headquarters, so that leaves anger, fear, and disgust in charge. And like you said, these are the primary emotions that are driving her in this moment. Most of her reactions to the world are because she doesn't have joy and belonging, and she absolutely refuses to feel sadness because she still wants to find that feeling of joy. That makes sense. As the rest of the movie, Riley doesn't appear to attempt to make things better with the upbeat attitude she had that we see reflected in joy. It's like that scene at dinner where Riley isn't interested in talking to her parents when her dad makes an effort. Riley reacts strongly out of anger. She's almost a completely different person. That's it. Go to your room. Now. Yeah, and that takes me to my next point, where all the islands start falling. The islands are what Joy defines making Riley, Riley. So the fall of these islands relate back to a paper written by Wolfgang Cross from the University of Munich titled The Narrative Negotiation of Identity and Belonging. So to summarize this paper, he states that there must be some back and forth, some negotiation, between what you define to be yourself and the surroundings you're in. So we see Riley have an established sense of self, but by moving to San Francisco, we witness her struggle with belonging, and that in turn affects her core persona. Exactly, and let's see that in action by revisiting the moments that the islands fall. The order that they fall in is goofball, friendship, hockey, honesty, and family. Throughout the film, events occur that cause each of these islands to fall, effectively demonstrating that Riley doesn't belong in whatever situation she's in. Otherwise, the islands would have remained strong. Family Island is the last to fall, and it's when she finally decides that she's had enough and she wants to leave and go back to Minnesota. Effectively, we can think of this as a breaking point for Riley, when all the islands are gone and she needs something new. So what actions do we see each of the emotions take during this moment? When Riley decides to run away back to Minnesota, it's anger that proposes this idea. And no one else is able to convince Riley that the idea is a bad one, except for sadness. It's sadness that's able to bring Riley back to her parents, and that's a step toward belonging that we can focus on. Sadness brings Riley back to the realization that she does belong. It's with her family, which connects to the idea that Family Island was the last to fall. In this moment, when sadness and joy create a new core memory, a new Family Island is created. And that's like the construction of a new identity in the context of the negotiation between Riley and her new situation in San Francisco. Her relationship with her family is now within this new context, so her Family Island looks different. That's a really good way of putting it. But also, moving forward after this pivotal moment in the film, we see that Riley's mood improves drastically and she starts playing hockey with a smile again as her parents cheer her on. And the fact that her parents are there shows how the moment of familial belonging was the first major step toward Riley feeling belonging in her new life. At the end of the movie, we see the construction of a new island and thus the construction of a new meaning of belonging for Riley. In a new home, she's able to redefine what it means for her to belong and it's a maturing moment for her. So over the course of the movie, her sense of belonging shifted to accept her new home as part of herself. All right, I could talk about Inside Out all day long, but you also chose a great movie, Caroline. Can you tell us about it? 
Of course, Alistair, I chose Disney's 2009 Princess and the Frog. Princess and the Frog is Disney's last 2D animated film, and it's a classic, complete with some of the best music of any Disney princess movie, in my opinion. In the south line, there's a The movie is a spin-off of the classic fairy tale Princess and the Frog. Tiana, a hard-working black woman in New Orleans, is focused on realizing her late father's dreams of opening a restaurant. She is knocked off course when Naveen, a prince visiting New Orleans, falls into the trap of Dr. Facilier, a shadow man. Naveen gets turned into a frog and accidentally turns Tiana into a frog as well. Tiana and Naveen traipse through the bayou, trying to turn themselves human and staying ahead of Dr. Facilier's plan to take over New Orleans. So when we discussed Inside Out, we talked about the word belonging more in the context of how an individual relates to a community or a family. I want to take my discussion of belonging in Princess and the Frog in a slightly different direction. I want to talk about whether the Princess and the Frog belongs with other Disney princess films or if it deviates from the traditional Disney princess formula. Well, first of all, Tiana is the first and only black princess. Yes, and she is also the most modern princess with the film taking place in New Orleans in the 1920s. I want to go a little deeper than that. I want to discuss whether the message about social hierarchy in Princess and the Frog fits in with Disney's overall message on social hierarchy. What exactly is Disney's message on social hierarchy? Good question. For that, we can turn to scholar Lee Arts, a professor of media studies and the director of the Center for Global Studies at Purdue University Northwest. He wrote the article, The Righteousness of Self-Centered Royals, The World According to Disney Animation, in 2004, where he analyzed the hierarchical narrative Disney films sell. Art's analysis is very thorough, but let me give you the overview of the three types of characters present in Disney films. First, we've got the heroes. Heroes are privileged, titled, and attractive. Think Snow White and Aurora, both princesses by birth. Even Cinderella was born a noble, and despite her evil stepmother, she still deserves to be a noble. Then, the villains. The villains are unattractive, scheming manipulators who have been allotted a lower social station in life, but are trying to rise above it. If they do have any power, they have it accidentally. They're trying to grab more power than they deserve. Think Scar, outcast by society, who wants to become king of the Pride Lands even though he doesn't deserve to. He might become king for a little bit by killing Mufasa, but he's eventually defeated by the noble Simba, who is entitled to rule. Lastly, we've got the rulers, or the upper class. The benign ruler, who is maybe slightly clueless, but overall good-natured, benevolent, and harmless, would never abuse their power. Think the Sultan from Aladdin. Harmless, benign, rotund, and childlike. He changes the law so Jasmine can marry who she wishes, because he's good at heart, and because royalty are fair and kind. The underlying message from this narrative that Disney perpetuates is that authority is benign, and that people who are attempting to improve their allotted station in life are evil and greedy. And that's pretty problematic because authorities aren't harmless or benevolent a lot of the time. And the lack of social mobility suggests that the people who are marginalized deserve to be marginalized and they should just stay where they are in society. It also suggests that the upper class inherently deserve to be upper class and they shouldn't be challenged. Exactly. It's a pretty toxic narrative about status and social class. Now that we have the context of art's research, do you think The Princess and the Frog falls in line with that kind of narrative? Well, 
Kinda no, surprisingly. My first thought is that Tiana is not privileged or titled. She is a black woman overworking herself as a waitress, trying to earn enough money to get a restaurant. She is the first Disney princess we see with a job, and in fact she has two. In addition, she falls in love with Prince Naveen, marries him, and becomes a princess, and then gets a restaurant. She definitely displays social mobility, so it seems like she contradicts the traditional Disney narrative on hierarchy that Arts outlines in his paper. I'm really glad you pointed all of that out because that is what my first thought was too. It really seems like Tiana's social status contradicts Disney's typical message. However, after some further investigation, I'm not so convinced that that's true. Why do you say that? It has mainly to do with two secondary characters in the movie, Charlotte LaBeouf and her father, Big Daddy LaBeouf. The LaBeoufs are rich, white socialites. Big Daddy is benevolent and slightly clueless, and he falls over himself to please Charlotte. All right now, princess, you're getting that dress, but that's it. No more Mr. Pushover. Charlotte is a spoiled but generous and kind Southern Belle who desperately wants to be a princess. Oh dear, it's getting to be so late. There's still a few stragglers. This is no failure. My prince is never coming. Now lie. I'll never get anything I wish for. Tiana's mother is a seamstress, and when Charlotte and Tiana were younger, Tiana's mother created beautiful princess gowns for Charlotte. Now that the girls are all grown up, they're still friends. Wow. Now that you're describing characters like that, they are sounding more and more like they fit into Disney's message about social class. Exactly. Big Daddy and Charlotte are the benevolent authority. But they aren't titled. They don't rule over anybody. That's true. But they're definitely highest up on the social ladder within the movie. They're wealthy, they're white, and there's nobody above them with more power. Even though technically the LaBeoufs don't have a title, they fill in Disney's predestined role of benevolent authority. Okay, I see what you're saying. But we decided earlier that Tiana breaks from Disney's narrative because she's lower class and displays social mobility. How do Big Daddy and Charlotte change that? That's a really good question. The answer is slightly less obvious due to Disney's tendency to sanitize racial and financial issues from their films. And what do you mean by that? Well, scholars Jesse Strieb, Maria Ayala, and Colleen Wexted outline it best in their paper titled Benign Inequality, Frames of Poverty and Social Class Inequality in Children's Movies. Essentially, Disney sanitizes issues of race and class within Disney films, and in doing so, the company legitimizes poverty and discrimination. Strieb and her colleagues refer to this idea as benign inequality, and talks about how by passing over legitimate issues in our society, children's media constructs poverty and discrimination as inevitable, normal, and acceptable things. The sanitization Strieb outlines is fully present within the film. First of all, it takes place in 1920s New Orleans, where racism and segregation would have run rampant, but that is totally glossed over, and the setting becomes a fictionalized New Orleans, wiped clean of the reality of what Tiana would face. In addition, the racial and wealth disparities between Tiana and the LaBeoufs are never really addressed within the movie. That's so true. Let's go back to your question about how Big Daddy and Charlotte change whether Tiana breaks Disney's traditional hierarchy. Because of the sanitization of the movie, the messages it sends are implicit. Tiana does technically move up in society because in the end she becomes a princess and gets her restaurant. So she does have some upward social mobility. But if we look past the sanitization of race and wealth, we can see that that mobility clearly has a limit. She does not get the LaBeouf's wealth or power. She doesn't even really get to be a princess, which would mean she would be more powerful than the LaBeouf's. She doesn't leave to rule Maldonia with Naveen. Instead, she just gets to have her restaurant so she can have her success without threatening Big Daddy and Charlotte. So she doesn't really fully display social mobility. Exactly. Even though the movie is reluctant to address wealth and race, the implicit message is that Tiana can move up, but only insofar that she doesn't challenge Big Daddy and Charlotte. The traditional hierarchy of authority, power, wealth, and whiteness is upheld. Oh, I see. So Tiana's slight social mobility is overshadowed by the ending, which doesn't really challenge any authority. Exactly. I guess then, when we ask whether The Princess and the Frog belongs with other Disney movies, the answer then is that it does. It upholds the same social power structure. 
That's what I'm thinking after my research and this conversation. It does belong with other Disney princess movies, which in this case is kind of unfortunate. Yeah, it is disappointing. Well, now it's time for every listener's favorite part of the show, the part where one of you gets to call in and share their thoughts on Disney and the word of the week, belonging. Dial in right now at 858-23-MAGIC to share your thoughts. Hi, my name is Bonnie Bell, and I am currently a music teacher at Walt Middle School. I wanted to call in during uh, my lunch break to talk about stuff. Wonderful. Thanks so much for calling in. Yeah, so great to hear from you. What would you like to discuss today? Do you have thoughts on either movie we talked about? Well, actually, I just showed my students the classic Disney film Fantasia, and it relates to belonging. I know you two already discussed the aspects of how people belong in a family or to a group, but I personally think belonging can apply to concepts, too. Fascinating. Go right ahead. Fantasia was one of the very first Disney movies. It was released in the 1940s. It's a short collection of really beautiful animation paired with various classical pieces like Tchaikovsky, Bach, Stravinsky, and more. However, it wasn't really well received. It sounds interesting, though. Why not? Fantasia was considered too highbrow by some audiences, and others thought it didn't really feel like it belonged with the rest of the Disney films. Walt Disney himself thought that Fantasia would elevate animation to media for the upper class. Okay, so can you explain more about how the concept of belonging applies to Fantasia? Well, I would argue that Fantasia's nonconformity to traditional storytelling and music resulted in the initial box office failures and unfavorable reviews from critics, but the very same unorthodox qualities makes it belong to the beloved Disney greats. What in Fantasia indicates that? Traditional storytelling, especially for Disney films, include a relatable character and a narrative. Fantasia defies this because there's really no common story. Each segment has a classical music piece and an animation that goes along with it. The intro is actually most famous for being the most abstract. Box, Takata, and Fugue plays as abstract shapes and colors float around the scene. It's kind of like that one scene from Ratatouille where Remy eats the cheese and strawberry on the screen. You can't taste the food, but the animators and the musicians portray of the feeling of the food. But I digress. As a result of Fantasia not aligning itself with the early stereotype of media, it lost about $15 million, and Stravinsky, whose piece was featured in the film, called it an unresisting imbecility. That's very harsh. However, recent critics, like the famous Robert Egbert, reviewed the movie, describing it as effortless magic, and it was visually adapted to the screen better than its predecessors. Fantasia was also inducted into the Library of Congress National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well, is the movie bad or good? Well, the most interesting thing is that the qualities for which it was praised were hated in the past. I think this just shows that the sense of belonging or conformity is fluid of time. People's opinion on what does and does not belong changes as the context of society changes. Critics thought that Fantasia didn't belong with the rest of Disney's repertoire, but now it's considered a classic. Yes. That's really interesting. What you said about belonging connects to our discussions about Inside Out and Princess and the Frog. And even though our word was belonging, the key phrase might actually be belonging in context. It seems like all of our arguments in some way have pointed to the idea that what we think belongs and doesn't belong changes as our context changes. So our sense of belonging or our opinions about what does and doesn't belong isn't really intrinsic. It's all about the context we're in. With Inside Out, Riley's sense of belonging and her family island changes 
as her context changes when she moves from Minnesota to San Francisco. Exactly. Her family island broke down and reconstructed itself with the context of San Francisco, where she now belongs. The context of San Francisco influences her sense of belonging. It changes how she relates to her family. That's interesting. And I think with Princess and the Frog, we saw the same thing happen to our opinions on whether we thought Princess and the Frog belonged with other Disney princess movies. At the beginning, we both thought that Tiana's lower social status meant that this movie was challenging Disney's hierarchical narrative, and that then Princess and the Frog didn't belong with other Disney movies. But then we added in more information, we added in more context about Charlotte and Big Daddy, and we thought about the larger narrative and realized that it doesn't really challenge any of the traditional power structures that are present within Disney films. And we decided that, in fact, the movie does belong with other Disney princess movies. So with more context, with different context, our opinions on whether it belonged changed. And don't forget about Fantasia. As society changed, people's opinions on whether if Fantasia belonged to Disney's classics changed too. Exactly. So it seems like belonging is all about context. Well, that was wonderful. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, Bonnie Bell. And it really helped us tie together all of our movies. No, thank you. Well, that was such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, very enlightening. I think this has some really interesting real-world connections. We decided that belonging depends on context and changes as context changes. It's a nice reminder that the next time we feel out of place or we feel that we don't belong, we can look at the context we're in and see if we can reframe our mindset. Feeling out of place never lasts forever. Just like Riley eventually found her home in San Francisco, everyone will eventually find where they belong. Yeah, and this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, anytime, Alistair. Well, Thanks, guys, for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversations about Inside Out, Princess and the Frog, and Fantasia. Three very different movies, but an interesting conversation nonetheless. We want to hear what you have to say about these movies, and if you agree or disagree with what we said. Comment on our website, comment on our Instagram, tweet us, retweet us, send us emails, tell us what you think. We want to hear from you. And now is the moment you've all been waiting for, the reveal of the new word for next week's discussion. Next week, C is for challenge. Please prepare your questions, thoughts, comments, and call in next week if you can. We want to hear from you and your take on Disney and the word challenge. If you had stuff to say about this week's topic or can't wait to share your thoughts on next week's until the next podcast airs, reach out to us on social media. Our Instagram handle is at Alphabet Analytics, same as our Twitter and Facebook. We're so grateful that you're listening to us. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.